Gentlemen, welcome back this week. Today we have another amazing, very exciting episode of Superman Life. Joining us back on the show this week. Yes, we have a returning guest with us today. It's none other than Dr. Glenn Livingston. Dr. Livingston is a veteran psychologist and was a longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. Glenn has sold 30 plus million dollars of marketing services over the course of his career. You may have seen some of his company's previous work, theories, and research in major periodicals like the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Indiana Star-Ledger, the New York Daily News, and many other major media platforms. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and or food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients in a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal, healthy weight in a much more lighted-hearted relationship with food. I mentioned Dr. Glenn was a previous guest on the show. If you want to unpack his story and talk more about his first book, Never Bidge Again, which has sold more than 1 million copies, you can find that episode linked down there in the show notes. That is episode 84, published back in July of 2021. But today, we're here to talk about Dr. Livingston's new book, Defeat Your Cravings. And in this episode, you can expect to learn why the traditional approach of loving yourself thin isn't an effective strategy for conquering and defeating your cravings. We're going to talk about how you can hack your thinking and get control of your reptilian brain. We're going to then unpack Dr. Glenn's eight steps to defeating your cravings, conquering your hunger, so you never binge again. And so much more. Guys, I brought Dr. Livingston back on the show because he and I resonate so much with each other's work. There's so many parallels in the work that we do. There's so many parallels in our approach. So for me, it's always an engaging conversation to see other people that are out there changing the paradigms when it comes to behavioral type addictions. And I'm really excited for you guys to dive into this episode with us today. But before we do that, guys, we want to first off, Thank you again for joining us here. If you're a new listener of The Superman Life, we are the only podcast in the world that is dedicating helping men level up in the five key areas of his life. So we want to thank you and welcome you to our show. And if you're getting value out of these conversations, guys, remember our growth, getting this podcast in front of more people to hear, to change their life, to go on to create their own Superman lives is a byproduct of you. And you can support us in two ways. First off, if you're getting value, guys, and you haven't done so yet, Head over to Apple, head over to Spotify, wherever you are consuming this podcast, make sure to leave a five-star rating and written review. But most importantly, if something in today's conversation, if something in any previous conversation has resonated with you and you know there's somebody in your life that needs to hear this message, do us a favor and do them the blessing by sharing this conversation with them. But without further ado, guys, let's get into today's conversation with Dr. Glenn Livingston, eight steps to defeat your cravings and never Binge again. We love you guys. We'll see you on the other side. Welcome to the Superhuman Life. I'm your host, Frank Rich, and this is the only podcast in the world that is dedicated to helping men level up in the five key areas of life. Each week, we bring you real and raw conversations with the world's leading experts in faith, fitness, finance, family, and freedom. 
to provide you with real actionable tools to break limiting beliefs, take action, and shatter the glass ceiling on your life's potential. So jump on board and join me on this journey as we dive into today's conversation and unlock the keys to you becoming the man you were born to be and creating your own superhuman life. Dr. Glenn, talk to me about your concepts around self-love and why if somebody is struggling with eating disorders, whether it's binge eating, overeating, or just a food addiction, that loving yourself thin is not an effective strategy. Um, loving yourself thin isn't really an effective strategy, although I'm in favor of loving yourself. I, I'm not in favor of hating yourself. I'm in favor of loving yourself. Um, just so I don't get a lot of hate mail. <laughs> I, I've actually gotten mail, mail that says, thank you, Dr. Sensitivity. Um, but loving yourself then in my estimation is not an effective strategy because it's not a problem. Overeating is not a problem related to the part of the brain that really knows love. L- love is like in the mammalian brain and the neocortex and, you know, where, where we form attachments and bonds and have a lot of theoretical concepts about what people mean to us. At a very primitive level, the reptilian brain is all about survival. It's like like a bad uh, bad college drinking game. It's eat, mate, or kill. It's not until you have the mammalian brain on top of that where it can say, well, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on my tribe and the people that I love? And then the neocortex says, well, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact does that have on my long-term goals like health and fitness and a contribution to society or my spirituality or my art or, you know, my, my crusade against pornography, whatever, whatever it happens to be. Um, the, the reptilian brain doesn't know love. And the problem with food addiction, eating disorders today, really is extraordinarily exacerbated by a bunch of fat cats in white suits with mustaches that are laughing all the way to the bank um, every time that you look for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container. Um, you know, they're, they're engineering these with, with hundreds of millions of dollars of research funds and a lot of rocket scientists. They're engineering these, these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and, you know, excitotoxins that are just geared at hitting that bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And so, um, Overeating, I tell people, and having very strong cravings is not a sign of a disease or a sick mind. It's actually a healthy brain doing its job. We had to be, 100,000 years ago, food acquisition machines. We had to be extraordinarily motivated to go find food, um, especially if we found a signal that seemed to trigger the availability, the, the availability of food. We had to get very motivated and you know, jazzed up to go and, go and get that food. Um, and so today we have all these, you know, colorful packages and hundreds of thousands of calories available at every street corner for a few bucks. It's, it's, um, it's a ridiculous supersized stimulus for the reptilian brain. And when you walk around thinking, well, I must just not love myself enough. You're just distracting from the issue. I, I tell people, look, I spent 30 years trying to love myself then maybe 25 um, I come from a family of 17 psychologists. I thought if I could fill the hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to fill in the hole in my stomach. I, I, it was a worthwhile journey on a personal spiritual level. It made me into a very, I think, soulful, rich person, psychologically rich person, but it didn't help me with overeating. I get a little thinner and a lot fatter and a little thinner and a lot fatter. 
What, what you want to do instead is think of them as two separate tasks. Your emotional healing, your self-work, your shadow work, whatever it is, it's a, it's a separate thing. What, to overcome overeating, what you really need to do is sever the link between emotion and overeating. The same way you would build a really good fireplace around a roaring fire. That roaring fire is an asset. Your emotions are an asset. They're not a liability. Um, it's, it's good that you are, if you have a propensity to feel depressed, it's actually a good thing. If you've got a propensity to feel really angry or really anxious, that means you're alive, man. That means you're alive and you care about stuff. And I'm not saying don't see a psychiatrist or take medication. Like by all means, work with your doctor, get therapy, but it's a separate thing. Overeating is just a nasty habit, collection of habits, and there's some very practical steps you can take to, to undo them. Yeah, I love that so much. And, and I, I want to really zero in on something that you said, that, that the overeating, the binge is not a disease. It's more of a sign of, you know, healthy, thriving living, you know, kind of based on these evolutionary uh, principles that, we, that, that you kind of touched on here a little bit. You know, I spoke uh, the other day at a child safety event uh, on internet safety. And this is with an organization that I'm involved with. And they bring me in as kind of the pornography expert. You know, we've had thousands of, of, of consultations with men now over the last couple of years. And there's these links between early age exposure to pornography and then men becoming addicted later on in life. And it's rooted in this, in this brain science, right? As, you know, as we're progressing and developing through our adolescence, our prefrontal cortex is being developed. Well, if you're consuming pornography through that entire development stage, then the chances of you being addicted when you're an adult are going to be at a much higher level. So I told the audience, like the fact that 70% of men out there admitting to being addicted to pornography to me is not like, I understand why, because I understand how the brain works. And I think you see it through the lens of food. So talk more about how our brains are actually developed to fall into these traps of overeating and why we need to be aware about some of these things. Um, like I said, we had to be able to acquire food quickly, get super motivated to acquire food quick, quickly. So if there is an unexpected, um, delicious experience, a particularly rich, caloric, and um, you know, and perhaps uh, rich in fat experience, your your system produces all of this dopamine, especially for unexpected experiences, and it's extremely pleasurable. It's almost like a drug. Uh, it's like, where did this come from? Oh my God. Oh, it's, it's the, oh my God response, right? Um, I actually had a friend 20 years ago. I now realize what he was doing. We could be out to a diner and he could order a new sandwich or something, you know, that wasn't on his, that um, he hadn't really tried before. And he'd take the first bite and he'd go, oh my God. Oh my God. Glenn, I can't eat this. This is too good. And if it's too good, it's no good be because, um, if it was too good, it was no good because he didn't want to develop the new habit. He recognized that the brain is set up to identify rich sources of calories, unexpected sources of calories really quickly. Think of a scarce food environment. You know, if you, uh, if you came across a monkey and you happened to follow it to a banana tree and all of a sudden you could gorge yourself in bananas, your brain would have to get really, really excited about monkeys going forward. Because you don't know when a competitor is going to find that tree. You don't know when the next tree is going to be available. So your brain would have to be really, really good at finding bananas. Um, so it's, it's the same with food. You know, if you, you taste a new type of potato chip in a particularly enticing bag and it smells good and it tastes good and you just go, oh, my God, um, you're going to have a habit before you know it. 
you're going to have it happen before you know it. So yeah. I don't know if that's answering the particular no, question yeah, you no, wanted absolutely. me to. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think you can see it with, with children, right? You know, you'll, you'll get these memes kind of floating around the internet. You know, you'll see videos where parents are sharing stuff on TikTok. Like they, they give their infant, you know, a piece of cake or a piece of candy for the first time. And it's like that first exposure to their, their taste buds. It's like, you can see the euphoria in the child's eyes and their expression almost as like, for me, I see the brain signals lighting up like through their, their, their visual expression of just how they're tasting this thing and to me that's like that kid is like his brain is going off because he's getting something that at that stage of his life he would have never had a hundred five hundred a thousand five thousand years ago so i think you're you're, you're definitely hitting it here with that it's a super size stimulus it's yeah a super size thing yeah absolutely so i know this is probably a difficult question to diagnose here in in a podcast but if we're wired for these binge type cravings how can a person identify if their cravings or binge eating is actually a problem that needs to be addressed in their life? I actually think I'm going to reframe that question because I, I wrote a whole article in Psychology Today about that. Um, I, I don't think you know that. Um, and I want to point out that by the DSM-5 criteria for um, binge eating, only like 2 to 4% of the population falls into that classification according to the DSM-5. However, 40% of the population is obese according to the World Health Organization. Um, diabetes is up by 80%. Cardiovascular disease now accounts for 31% of global deaths. Um, I think heart disease is more than doubled in, in terms of the frequency, maybe even tripled. And so if you ask yourself your question, am I a formally diagnosable binge eater? In order, to, in order to decide whether you want to work on developing more of a eating with your own best judgment muscle, then I, I think it's the wrong question. I think the question we should ask is, do I eat beyond my own best judgment? Am I capable of setting up a plan for myself and sticking to it? And if that's, that's the case, how much damage is it doing? And do I want to fix that? The ways that I offer to fix that kind of thing are not invasive. There's no surgery. There are no pills. There's no, um, you know, there's no twenty thousand dollar ticket to to make it better. It's not irreversible. It's just a way to organize your thinking that could help you tr dramatically. So I, I try to tell people. My, my original book had binge in the title, and this is why my new book is called "The Future Cravings" rather than having binge in the title because. Uh, the feedback I got was that as popular as it got, and I, I had over a million readers and 20,000 reviews, that people, they were not like leaving it on their desk because it would tell other people that they were binge eaters. And people kept asking that question, do I need this? Maybe I'm not really a binge eater. So I really think we should say, well, who cares? The question is, am I eating beyond my own best judgment? And is it damaging my health or even my confidence and mental well-being? Got it. No, I love that. I love the reframe. And I, I, I appreciate you doing that. Um, so I guess what, what I'm hearing you say is in, in your frame, like if somebody's got their cravings under control and they're living a healthy, thriving lifestyle and 95% of the time they're in full control once a while getting gluttonous and saying, Hey, you know what? Once a month, like I've worked really hard for it. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to eat to the point where my stomach just is exploding through my pants. A certain individual would be okay with that. That's not a diagnosis for everybody, but I guess in your frame, like if that's the way that somebody can kind of live and operate and, and it's not impacting negatively areas of their life, that would be a, a, a healthy way, I guess. It, would that be something that you would agree to? Well, I mean, I mean, we, I think there's a difference between healthy and um, free. And we fought wars in this country for our freedom. 
And I think that everybody has the God-given right to choose where they fall on the continuum between live fast and die young and live slow and, and enjoy the ride. And um, I used to optimize everything I did for the 100% healthiest outcome I could possibly get. And, you know, so for example, I was eating completely raw vegan, really just living on fruit and vegetables. And it made it very difficult to coordinate with other people in society. I was starting to feel more isolated. And I said, well, most of my friends are probably not going to do this. So why do I want to live to 120 if my friends are going to die at 85? Um, so I don't optimize everything for the absolute healthiest thing way that I possibly could be. And if I, if I really want to plan out a, you know, a whole foods, you know, vegetarian pizza, I'll, I'll do that. But, um, I, I find over the years that the price I pay for it is bigger and bigger. Like the cleaner my system gets, the less that I want it. But everybody decides for themselves what they want to indulge in. That's, this is part of why my program is diet agnostic. I'm not going to tell anybody how to eat. I will tell you that if you're trying to follow an extreme diet, it's really hard to do. Um, but I'm not going to tell anyone how to eat. And I find that people don't recover unless they make their own rules. You can read a book. You can say, I want to follow this guru or that guru. But unless you take responsibility for it, it just, it just doesn't work. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, let's, 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 let's transition here. Pivotal. You talked about, you know, the new book that you wrote here, defeat, defeat your cravings. I want to kind of dive into this and see how much we can kind of extract. Obviously we want everybody to go out and pick up Dr. Glenn's new book. And if you guys haven't yet after this episode, make sure to go listen to our first episode, episode 84 that dropped a little over two years ago. Uh, we really unpacked his first book, never been dreaming, but first off, congratulations on a million plus readers. I mean, as somebody that is in the process of writing their first book, that is a, a, a milestone that very few authors reach. So knowing that you had the success with the first one, what was the reason for writing, I don't know, version two, volume two, or the extension? I recovered by fixing my thinking about food. At least that's what I focused on. Um, I would make very clear lines in the sand, like I'll only ever have chocolate on the weekends. And then if I heard a little voice inside me that said, go ahead and have a couple of ounces of chocolate, because you worked out really hard, you're not going to gain any weight, and it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow. I would say, wait a minute, that's not me. I actually called it my inner pig. I said, that's my inner pig. It's squealing for pig slop. Chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't, I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. It's just a fancy way of waking up at the moment of impulse. But it was a very clear line, and I could separate my constructive thoughts, which were about sticking with the plan, versus my destructive thoughts, which were about, um, you know, exiting the plan, and. I would focus on the reasons that my inner pig, my inner food monster would give me for breaking the rule. So if it says you can just start your silly diet again tomorrow, I would say, wait a minute. No, I can't. It's going to be harder because what fires together wires together by the principle of neuroplasticity. If I have a craving for chocolate today and I have the thought that I should start tomorrow and then I eat chocolate, I will have reinforced both the craving and the thought. So I'll be more likely to have the craving and the thought. Therefore, if I'm in a hole, I have to stop digging, always use the present moment to be healthy. That's an example of a refutation or um, fixing your cognitions or thinking about food. And what that does is it removes the justifications that greased the chute between stimulus and response before. So now it becomes a lot more uncomfortable, psychologically uncomfortable to go down that chute. Okay, fast forward eight years, I published the book, and a couple of years later, um, we're getting, you know, 40, 50 people a month that want 
our help. So I got a bunch of coaches working for me. I work with over 2,000 people over the next um, eight years after that, or seven years after that. And I got very good at fixing people's thinking quickly. So it took me a bunch of years, but I got to the point that we could fix people's thinking in a couple of months because that's what we that's what we focused on. And we wound up with an almost 90% reduction in overeating after only one month for the people that engaged. People that don't engage don't really get results. Um, so, so now I'm getting really good at fixing people's thinking. And I noticed that in the last year or two, there are these, um, there's a chink in the armor where, you know, the system really works. People do dramatically better. I get these letters every day, but every now and then people tell me, you know, I just got to this point where I said, screw it, just do it. I'm going to have a conscious pig party. I know it's the wrong thing. I know why it's the wrong thing. My pig is telling me stupid crap, but it's, I know it's, I know what's wrong with it, but who cares? I'm going to do it anyway. Screw it. Just do it. And I thought, what is that response about? I kind of thought back upon how I recovered and I realized that I didn't just intervene cognitively. I didn't just intervene with my thinking. There were other things that I had to do. Like I had to attend to more authentic nutrition. I, I needed to not only grit my teeth and bear it when the, you know, when the pig said, go have that chocolate bar, but I had to ask myself, what do I authentically need at this point? And often it was like a kale banana smoothie or a big salad or a couple of pieces of fruit. Often there was something that my body really needed. Um, and so it wasn't a matter of either gr- grabbing on tight and suffering or, you know, just picking out. There was this third option where I really had to attend to some authentic need. And I realized there were times when what I needed was not authentic nutrition. I just needed to step out of the rat race. You know, I, I'm responsible for a lot of things. I've always, I always have been. I take care of a lot of people. I've had, I've had a big clinical practice. I've had corporate endeavors. I, you know, I was married. I had dogs and nieces and nephews. And um, I even had an ant farm a long time ago. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> There wasn't much to take care of when I was pretty young, but 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 I couldn't resist making a stupid joke sometimes. Um, but I would characterize the problem as organismic distress, like you know, it was too isolated, too dehydrated, not enough sleep, not enough nutrition, um, too many decisions, too many impingements upon my ability to make good decisions, and I recognized when I went back and I thought that through. And then I looked at when my clients were having this screw it, just do it response, that it was almost always because of some organismic distress. And it turns out that makes sense because the reptilian brain has the ability to push aside the rational brain in times of emergency. When the brain perceives that it needs resources, that there's something urgent impinging on it, even if it's a false emergency, which it usually is, then it will, it will say, forget your silly diet, forget all your best thinking, all that work you did to, to you know, refute all of my rationalizations. Um, we're, we're in trouble. It's like there's a hungry bear chasing us and we just have to do, 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 do. We don't have time to think and rest and digest and do all this airy-fairy, let's be good and love, love ourselves kind of thing. Um, and so this book is about integrating that type of self-care with the effectiveness of fixing your thinking. So fixing your thinking is still a foundation, but now we're attacking the screw it, just do it response by 
using some breathing exercises, looking at your nutrition, um, looking at your social connectedness, looking at the amount of decisions that you're making over the course of the day. We've got a, we've got a program for gradually improving that. It's possible to recover without doing that. Like you can, you can rationally and emotionally refute the idea that you should screw it and just do it. Like you can say, look, I don't care that you don't care, pig, because I care very much. I'm not going to screw it. Just do it. Go back in your cage. I'm tired of dealing with you. Like you can be an aggressive alpha wolf and put it back. But that requires mojo, requires you to have a, a real attitude and the strength to do it. And it just turns out to be a whole lot easier if you fix the organismic distress also. So that's that's in essence what's different about the new book. There's also more of an understanding of the science of cravings, what actually causes them, how they're extinguished, what reactivates them. And um, I can go into that more if you want to, but I'll pause and let you ask questions. Yeah, no, this is great. Um, I definitely want to circle, circle back to the science of cravings. But what I just heard you break down and explain there is this new book, Defeat Your Cravings, is rooted in the question that I asked you at the beginning around self-love. Everything that you talked about, I would categorize as elements of self-love, doing all the things that we need for ourselves on a daily basis. And I think for me, that's a different perspective of looking at self-love versus the accepting you for the way that you are, loving you, even if you're not pursuing pure greatness. I think the highest form of self-love is pursuing greatness, pursuing reaching your full potential. And in doing so, I always talk about this analogy of a cup. You know, a lot of us, like yourself, we wear multiple hats. For me, running the podcast, running business, managing the team, managing our client list, trying to do the things that I want to physically. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm involved in kind of some recreational sports. These are all things that, for me, fill my cup up. Because if I, if, if, if I don't do this, then I go to serve the community. I pour out of the cup. I go to serve the men in, inside of our program. I pour out of the cup. So if I'm not intentional about filling that cup up every single day, I'll reach a point at the end of the week where I go to pour and I pour from an empty cup. And pouring from an empty cup creates anxiety, creates stress, creates all of these things that we then go look for exterior ways to fill that back up. For us, the men that we serve here, a lot of times that's that's in our compulsive nature with pornography. For others, it's going to be we go to fill it up with Ben and Jerry's ice cream or cookies or whatever it is. So all I heard you explain is this book is about loving yourself first, and that's the pathway to defeating your credit. But, but I, I like your distinction between um, actually loving yourself versus the Stuart Smalley, gosh darn it, I'm good enough and smart enough and people like me looking in the mirror doing kind of affirmations kind of loving yourself. I like your distinction. Well, I think it's important because we, we don't love others by accepting them for who they are. Anybody that's a parent, like you don't love your kids by letting them do whatever they want to do. You know, I have pets. I don't have children, but I have, I have a dog. Like I love my dog, but by loving him, I created boundaries for him. He just doesn't do what he wants to do. He does what's best for him that I've been able to figure that stuff out. So I think we got to look at the relationship with ourselves a lot of times as a relationship that we would have with another. It's not just, yeah, I'm fat and unhealthy and I'm not pursuing anything great today. So I'm going to tell myself that I'm good and I'm great. No, get your ass up and go do the things that you know you need to get done. And that is actually the highest form of self-love. We, we develop self-esteem by doing esteemable things. 100%. Yeah, absolutely, man. Jim Rohn said that a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. And Peter McWilliams said you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. Um, and so, you know, building self-esteem is really about building discipline and pursuing the goals that you want. And 
um, freedom sits on top of discipline. It doesn't, it's not really opposed to it, right? If it's because of the disciplines that you have to create the body that you want and the energy that you want, that you're free to, you know, roam around the world and do what you want to do. It's because of the discipline of the engineers that designed the car so that it, the wheels turn 30 degrees when you turn the steering wheel 30 degrees that you can drive where you want to go. And it's because of the discipline of the uh, jazz pianist who studied all the scales and knows the structure of music that they can really express their soul. So fr- freedom sits on top of discipline and it's, um, it's, it's all about that kind of self-love. No, 100, 100%. Yeah. We're, we're, we're in line with, with all that. Let's talk about the science of cravings here. We, you know, you mentioned it uh, here a couple of times that there's been some new, you know, I don't want to call them groundbreaking insights, but new things that you've learned that you've been able to put into this new book. So talk to us about the science of cravings and what's kind of been new in your world. Well, okay. So, um, it started with the understanding that cravings are a sign of a healthy brain doing its job. Um, what's, what's been, there are two things that have been very helpful in terms of actually overcoming overeating very practical implications. One is understanding something we call the extinction curve. So if you, let's say you have a pizza problem and you're getting pizza every day on the way home from this one particular pizzeria from work. If you decide, okay, this is getting the better of me. I'm going to make a rule. I'm never going to stop at that pizzeria again. Well, for a couple of days on the way home, you'll have less cravings. You'll have a little bit of a honeymoon period. And then your cravings are going to shoot up. They're going to be worse than they ever were before when you pass the pizzeria. That's called an extinction burst. The reason for that is that your brain is trying to see whether your, whether the pizzeria has become an intermittent signal for the availability of pizza. So let me back up for a second and talk about food signals. Rewind to 100,000 years ago. Thag is on the savanna and he's looking for food. He comes across a monkey and follows that monkey to a banana tree, gorges himself on bananas. All of a sudden, Thag loves monkeys. Uh, a monkey has become a food signal for the availability of bananas. So every time Thag sees a monkey, he starts following the monkey, looking for another banana tree. Now, what do you think would happen if Thag followed a monkey to a barren tree? What, what do you think would happen? He would be disappointed, upset, angry. Would he give up on following monkeys? Not the first time, I don't think. Right. He, he would double down. His brain would get him to double down by secreting more dopamine because what probably happened in the wild was that food sources were um, depleted gradually, not all of a sudden. And so the, those of us who worked harder at following monkeys to banana trees would have gotten more bananas. And so that's, it's called intermittent reinforcement. And your brain is trying to figure out when suddenly the pizza place, which is the equivalent of the monkey in this situation, because they're both signaling the availability of food. When suddenly pizza place no longer leads to pizza, your brain is starting to think, oh, maybe this is like the banana tree running out of bananas. I better try even harder. I'm going to follow more pizza places. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to work even harder. So you're going to get that extinction burst and your cravings are going to be really, because it would be better for Thag to follow monkeys that led to banana trees 80% of the time than to have to go find a new food signal altogether. As a matter of fact, in a very scarce food environment, even if you only found food 20% of the time, it would be better for Thag 
to go after the monkeys. I need a better name for the caveman, but actually, you know what, man, I was going to wait for you to finish and comment on this. I don't know how much historical uh, research you did. I couldn't think of a better name for the caveman than thag. It just sounds like something like me thag type of thing, right? You know, it's like a very <laughs> short and simple, like there's there's single syllable me thag. Like I, I, I'm, I'm with it, dude. I think it's a great name. Okay. Thank you. It just, I, I came up with that name by the method of rectal extraction. Um, but I, I just yeah, pull that out of nowhere. Pull that out of nowhere. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but, but the point. Meat bag. I'm sorry. So, so, <laughs> so, so the point is that an intermittently reinforced um, food signal becomes more addictive than a regularly reinforced food signal. So, and this is, for example, the reason you don't want to just indulge at random. If you do want to still have pizza, it would be better to define the specific conditions under which it's available. Like I'm only going to have pizza on Saturdays after my workout. So your brain doesn't think that it's randomly available. If it thinks it's randomly available, it's going to get stuck on that food signal the same way that those little ladies get stuck on the slot machines in Las Vegas, because you never know when it's going to pay off, right? Think about it. If you said the slot machine only paid off on Saturdays at 10 o'clock, you wouldn't see crowds at the slot machine on Friday, Thursday, or Wednesday, right? Um, so you, you do better with a very conditionally reinforced, very specific reinforcement schedule. Okay, let's go back to the extinction curve. So it goes down for a couple of days, and then it has the, I call it the, where, where the F is my pizza response, like, or where the F is my whatever. It just jumps up and it says, where is it? What happened? What happened? I don't want to give up on that learning. People think at this point that they're doing something wrong, or they think that it's going to be torturous forever, and they don't recognize that if they just ride over the hump, it's going to start going down, right? And it, it goes down over the course of um, anywhere between like 15 and 21 exposures, sometimes 30. And towards the end, there are a couple of little spikes just before the brain gives up. Now, I say gives up, but it's not really what happens because the brain doesn't ever unlearn things, especially when it comes to calorie acquisition. What the brain does is it labels it dormant. So the pizza place will no longer bother you unless you go in and have a pizza at random, in which case you reset the whole curve and you go back to, to step one. So I tell people extinguishing cravings is something you want to do one time. If you break out of prison, you don't want to um, go back and see your friends. You know, run as far as you can from the wall once you get over the wall. Um, but it's okay. You don't have to necessarily give it up completely. You could say, I just have pizza on Saturdays, but stick to it and Try not to indulge at random because you're going to make it much worse on yourself. So that's that's the extinction burst. The, the other thing – oh, I'm sorry, one more thing. The other place where people make a mistake is that when they're finally over that really big hump, they get really cocky and they say, oh, I've got this. I know this. And so then they try to go out and have pizza again, and they don't know that they're just resetting the whole thing. So try to try to take the extinction curve seriously, do it one time, and then leave it alone. Um, and decide exactly what role that substance will play in your life. Define it very carefully and, and go for it. Okay. The other thing we learned about cravings that um, is, a, is a paradigm shift was that overeating and any given craving is actually not a unitary habit. It's more of a collection of habits because the learnings are attached to particular food signals. So let's say you don't go for the pizza place for a whole month. And by the end of the month, you can pass it, no problem. You can't even remember why it used to bother you. That's great. Then all of a sudden, you're at your dad's place and you used to play poker with your dad and your grandfather. And your grandfather's there and they're playing cards. 
and they ordered a pizza. All of a sudden, you get this really intense craving because your brain had this other pattern. It remembered that pizza was associated with those poker games. You didn't go through an extinction curve for that one. You went through an extinction curve for the daily habit of going through the pizza place. Some people get a little demoralized by this and they say, well, obviously this is impossible. I'll never get over my pizza cravings. I might as well give up um, because I failed. You know, I failed and I had pizza, but you didn't actually fail. You successfully extinguished the first food signal pizza pair. You didn't extinguish the dad's place pizza pair. If you want to extinguish that quickly, go make a couple of, you know, spend a long week with dad, get through the worst of the of the extinction burst. And um, you can also use tools like having your higher self schedule an email to arrive when you know you're going to be at your dad's place for the next couple of months. Um, so there are things you can do to kind of work around that. But but overeating is not a unitary habit. It's a collection of habits. And knowing that empowers you to go through the extinction curve for each of the habits that that comprises a particular problem. Yeah, no, that's a really that's a really good um, you know breakdown visual you know well auditory, but you gave kind of visual examples that hopefully you know the listeners can kind of see as they're going through these curves. And I'm glad that you you know really you know you focus in on like there's going to get a point where it actually gets harder before it gets easier. You know, and a lot of the men that that that, that we deal with, you know, we, we call this a flat line. You know, you'll reach a point when you've gone you know, without your drug for an extended period of time, that your body's going to be like, hey, remember the feeling that this drug used to give us? Go give us more of that. And the cravings kind of get elevated. And I, you know, I preface and I try to set the guys up that, hey, if you're doing the work that it needs to be done, you're going to reach this point. And that is a sign that things aren't going wrong, that they're actually going right. So being able to recognize that, hey, early on, I guess it's, it's setting the tone. I'm sure you, you, you unpack that and, and, and cover that in the book. But would you also say that even prior to embarking on this journey, that it's important to define the future relationship that you want to have with these particular foods? Or do you get past the craving first and then you define what the relationship is going to be? Or is that something you want to have a precursor set early on? I, I usually have a conversation with people where I say, like, let's say they're struggling with pizza. I'll say, well, what role would you like pizza to play in your life? Do you, do you want to have it once in a while? Um, if it was a month from now and you acted in a way you were most proud of with pizza, what, what would that be? And people will tell me. Sometimes they'll say, I just want to have it once a week on Saturday. Sometimes they'll say, I wish I could get rid of it altogether. Sometimes they'll say, I wish I could get rid of it altogether, but I think I'm going to miss it too much. And then I'll say, well, would you like to do an experiment for 30 days and see what, see what happens? And you can change your mind at the end of those 30 days. So um, it, it kind of depends how much damage it's doing and how addicted they are. There are people who have to avoid pizza like arsenic every day for the rest of their life. And, um, you know, I can't tell them if that's the case. I mean, I, I kind of sort of could, but I don't like to tell them that's the case. I like them to come to their own conclusion about it. Um, but mo most people know where their troubles foods are. And most people, if you ask them that magic question, could you define an ideal month with food? How would you eat? And, and the definition can be different for particular substances. Like maybe pizza is a problem, but pasta isn't. Or maybe sugar is a problem and flour isn't. Or maybe chocolate is a problem and donuts aren't. Um, so it can be different for, for different things. When people struggle repeatedly, I'll tell them, do me a favor. Try one month without any sugar, flour, or alcohol. Just one month, no sugar, flour, or alcohol whatsoever. And then decide what role you want these things to play in your life. And that, that's often a very successful solution when nothing. I was going to say works. that probably that probably helps a lot of people just eliminating those from from their life. Sh sugar, flour, and alcohol uh, 
increase depression and decrease life satisfaction in studies. They interfere with your ability to think your way, you know, through problems. And um, I remember a long time ago when I went to Overeaters Anonymous, and I'm, I'm not a fan of them anymore, but a good thing that I learned was that a lot of times the crazy thoughts you have trying to, you know, trying to figure out what to do when you're still eating sugar is just the sugar talking. It's, they would say, well, that's just the sugar talking. And I think there was some truth to that. I think you think differently when you're on sugar than when you're not. Yeah. I probably asked you this last time, but I'd love to, I'd love to ask you again. Um, you just, you just mentioned you're not a fan of overeaters anonymous. You know, I've talked about my, my views on 12 steps. I mean, um, you know, from overall success and helping people, they've probably done more good than any other real addiction based organization, but I see a lot of gaps and they see a lot of things broken in their approach. Why would you say you're not a fan of overeaters anonymous? Well, I, I'm probably going to get a lot of hate mail for this because it's it doesn't sound very compassionate. It's based upon the 12-step programs are based upon Alcoholics Anonymous, which tells people that they're powerless over alcohol and they can't quit even if they want to. Um, there, there's no scientific evidence for that. Um, people coming in to the program are coming in at a very vulnerable point when they're looking for help to quit and they're told that they can't quit. They're told that it's not a moral issue when I think if you know that if you have one sip of alcohol that you might get behind the wheel of a car and maim or kill someone or blow up your family finances, how, how is that not, not a moral issue? Like they don't, they don't really take responsibility. They'll make amends for things that happened while they were drinking, but they'll say, I, I can't help myself. The devil made me do it. And I think, I think that's an abdication of free will and responsibility when what we really need is a culture that says, um, look, you're, you're responsible for what you put in your mouth. You can choose. And it's less serious in Overeaters Anonymous um, because, you know, people are not eating donuts and getting behind the wheel and killing someone. But it's still an abdication of free will and responsibility. And they're promoting the notion of powerlessness. Um, you know, the, the I know of studies... It's very difficult to study the 12-step programs because you can't conduct a controlled experiment. And I don't have double-blind controlled experiments in my stuff either. So I, you know, he without sin cast the first stone, right? But um, the only quasi-controlled experiments that there were showed that Alcoholics Anonymous was at parity or worse than doing nothing at all. And so a, a group that demands so much of your time and energy um, takes you away from the family, tells you that you can't help yourself if you have one drink, you're just going to go on a bender for two months. I, I just, and then they suggest that you, you know, go home and tell your wife that, well, I'm working on the problem. I'm working on the problem. You know, I, I yes, I threw up all over the carpet and I crashed the car and I have this DWI and we're paying all this money for attorney, but, but I'm working on the problem. I, I, I think I'll, I'll try to do better today. I don't know about tomorrow. I think I'll do better today. I, I, I think that I think on a moral basis that um, they owe their spouses more, you know, wife or husband. I think I think they owe them more than that. So I, I think what they do well is they'll focus on abstinence. I think that they um, will have people focus on other tools like writing or journaling or social connection rather than than drinking. I think they recognize that um, there is a period of binge fantasies and instability that comes before the actual indulgence. And I think they can help people with that from time to time. But overall, it's it's based upon a lie and it's based upon a philosophy that says, um, the devil made me do it. I can't help myself. 
and and I just haven't seen the evidence for that. I think it's the wrong thing to say. It's a very low view of humanity. Yeah, no, you're we, we're 100 in agreement with that. We we had an episode probably two and a half, three three months ago where the guest shared a story. So he, you know, was somebody that struggled with alcoholism for vast majority of the early stages of his adult life, and he was sitting in a AA meeting, and a woman next to him stood up and you know said, "I'm 35 years, you know, clean and sober. I've taken it one day at a time." And he looked at her, and she looked weak, and she looked frail and decrepit. And you could see the struggle and pain in her eyes that literally this woman for 35 years was tackling her addiction 24 hours at a time. And he had this realization, like, I don't want that. Yeah. Drinking over here, being an alcoholic was bad. That in his opinion looks a lot worse than what I was doing. So he's, you know, he's gone down the path of, you know, kind of yours and I approach more of a holistic base. His is more fitness driven approach, but he's like, I transcended the need for these things. I can have a drink every once in a while if I want it, but it doesn't have that power over me. So I think we agree on that, that no, saying we're powerless to anything in this world is removing the, the free will, removing the personal responsibility out of you. So I, I, I love that. I'm, I'm thankful that you shared that. Yeah. Um, so I want to I dive into the book here a little bit. Obviously, I want to, once again, point all the listeners to go pick up The Feature Cravings, The Backdoor to Weight Loss, especially if you or somebody in your life is struggling with this. You can, you can get it free on my website. If you click the big blue button, you get it free on the defeaturecravings.com website. So why did I pay for this one? I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I thought I sent it to you. I, I would have sent it to you. Yeah. But let's go through, because you have eight steps in your book. I want to maybe just quick touch on each one of these eight and kind of just get your thoughts on why they were in this order. So we're going to start with the eight steps of the feature cravings. I'm not exactly sure if that's what you call them. But step one, you talk about knowing your enemy. What do you mean by that? You need, to, you need a way to wake up when you're about to break your rules. M- most people live with an ambiguous kind of squishy line of what healthy eating really is. They never step, never step back and think through for themselves, where's my bullseye? If you don't know where your bullseye is, then you don't know when you're about to cross it. And so there isn't this very discreet moment in time when you can make a vital choice. So I have people begin by picking one simple rule. I'll never go back for seconds, for example. And that way you know any thought in your head that suggests you should go back for seconds, that's your reptilian brain waking up and saying, I want to break the rules. And you know you need to do something and initiate all the rest of the process. I did not get better until I did that um, because you know I went for, through these approaches which said you should um, try to just be really mindful and present while you're eating and eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. Then I consequently learned, by the way, that the food industry puts chemicals in packaging and some of the products that turn off our ability to know when we're full. Um, and, you know, and, and how do you only eat when you're hungry when there's just these ridiculously supersized stimulus stimuli right in front of you? Like, like if you are looking at naked women walking down the street all the time, it's kind of hard not to engage in pornographic activity, right? Like there, there needs to be some way to, um, so, so that's what that means. It, it means Wake up something that will wake you up in the moment of impulse and help you separate from your inner enemy so that you can start to take action. Yeah, yeah. So know, know your enemy, step one. I would say that's recognizing your triggers. Move into step two, eliminate your enemy's excuses. Is this the, the inner pig inside of us that we talked about? Yeah, in the last that, that, that's, the, that's the rationally pointing out what's logically wrong with what your excuses are saying, right? It says just one bite won't hurt. Well, one bite's a tragedy. It always leads to more. And one... One bite is the difference between who's in charge, you or me. One bite off of my plan. Yeah. Okay. So we've recognized that then there's, there's a lie. Turning off step three, turn off false alarms. 
that's what I was talking about before with the organismic distress, where the brain is firing and saying, it doesn't matter all of your rational thinking and all the work you did to refute me, because I'm not going to let you use that at all right now, because the body just needs something. We need resources. We're too hungry. We're too sleep deprived. We're dehydrated. We haven't had enough um, time away from the rat race to really think straight. We're too isolated. You need to work on turning off that organismic distress so you don't get that screw it, just do it response. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I'm really curious where this one's going to go. So step four, because we've been talking a lot about free will, personal responsibility, making choices. So I'm curious what you mean by cultivate powerful motivation. Well, and it's important that it's step four and not step one, because in, in the defeated craving system, we develop motivation, which proceeds from the rules that you want to adopt. So it's not just general motivation, rah, 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 I want to be thin. It's why do I want to stop going back for seconds? I would ask you, um, if you were to imagine yourself in one year and you never went back for a second helping again, what would be different? And not just your weight, weight is a secondary, this is a byproduct of this, by the way, because if you focus too much on your weight, you're going to create a false sense of emergency. There's this panic about having to lose, and then that defeats the whole purpose. Um, you know, so unless your doctor says you have to lose weight quickly, I tell people to focus on gaining control and the ability to, to follow these rules, then weight loss can happen. You adjust your rules over time. And it's, I like people to lose weight slowly, maybe a pound, a pound a week. Um, but, but we develop motivation that proceeds from rules to a, a vision of the future that you'll realistically achieve with those rules. Sometimes that's a year out. Sometimes, sometimes people just can't imagine being able to do it for a whole year. I'll say, tell me what would happen anyway, even though your pig says it can't be done. But sometimes they just can't. So I'll say, could you imagine in 72 hours, if you didn't go back for seconds for three days, what would be different? And when people have really been overeating, they'll say, well, yeah, my, my digestion would be better. And I'd, I'd feel a sense of master. I'd feel like it was possible, like I could be the master of my own face. I wouldn't feel powerless. I wouldn't feel hopeless. I wouldn't feel the sense of despair that I feel now that I can't ever control it. Um, so we, we make a careful assessment of what's believable for a person. We link the motivation to a very specific rule or set of rules. And we make sure that, that, that those rules are um, at a reasonable level. You, most people make the mistake of setting them way too high to start with. And the problem with that is that motivation comes and goes, no matter how much work you do on it. And there's some days you just don't have your mojo. And you need rules that you will follow even when you don't have your mojo. Because if you observe yourself to be doing something consistently, like I just, you know, I want to eat chocolate during the week. If you observe yourself to be doing that consistently, your identity function kicks in and it starts to think, it's not like I'm hanging on and I don't eat chocolate during the week. It's like, I'm, I'm just not a person who eats chocolate during the week. I only eat chocolate on weekends right? It becomes part of your character. Character trumps willpower. And then before you know it, it's easy. It's not like there are a bunch of Nazi food police in your head and you're, you know, trying to make sure you don't get caught. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and, and um, I was curious where you're going to go, like I said, because I, I would agree as well. And I think I don't, it's not my opinion. Like motivation is something that comes and goes. And if we only are going to do these things when we're motivated, chances of us succeeding long-term. But what you're saying is the motivation is in creating the future that you want without these things. It's establishing that identity of the person that we're running to, as opposed to something that we're trying to stop doing. And that's the same approach that we take. It's, so it's very growth centric, right? Is I can see a vision of a future life and then work towards creating that for myself. And, and if you're brave, you can also use a ghost of Christmas future technique. So I'll often ask people, I tell them they don't have to do this if they don't want to. But what if you just kept doing what you're doing now? 
What if you let your pig run the show? What's going to, what's life going to be like? Not in a year, but in 10 years. And the reason that's important is most people don't realize that their pig has been telling them that they can start whenever they want to. A year from now, they'll be at about the same place that they are now. But the truth is, if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. Um, Jack Trimpey says, addiction expands to the tolerance that surrounds it. And, you know, and, and so you really do have to focus on the person that you want to become. Otherwise, you're going to become the person that your pig wants you to become. So, so we look at the ghost of Christmas future and say, what would that be like? And that usually scares people straight. So we actually, in, in, in our coursework, we had those two assignments integrated together. So in the week that you cast the vision for the light that you can't have without, you also cast a vision of the daunting future, the ghost of the Christmas, right? That you kind of said. So now we have something that we're running to. We're running towards this vision of life without pornography, but we're also running from the potential of creating the one that still has it in there. So you're kind of pulling on both of those motivational drivers there, running to and also running from. So I love that. Um, step here five, right after cultivate powerful motivation is extinguish your cravings. I think that's what we're trying to do through all these steps. So what do we specifically mean here in step five, extinguish your cravings? Well, that, that's what I told you about with the extinction curve where, where you, yeah, you, you make a list of the food signals that are leading you to overindulge. You kind of prioritize them. Um, usually 80% of the problem is in the first couple of, of signals. And then you get momentum because you feel so much better to burn through the rest of them. But but you take each extinction curve very seriously. You prioritize it, execute in order of priority. Um, and then, you know, you make sure that you don't go back to prison to visit your friends once you're, once you're out. Step six, circling back to some motivation. Automate motivation at the moment of impulse. This is an optional step, but it's very powerful. Um, in psychology, there's something called operant conditioning. The best way I could illustrate it is with a, I used to have a 125 pound Doberman pincher and I accidentally taught him to sneeze for cheese. I was standing at the refrigerator. Um, and this was before I was a, you know, a whole foods plant-based person. I'm standing at the refrigerator, eating a piece of cheese. And he happened to sneeze as he walked by and I gave him a piece of cheese. And I, he looked at me, he sat down and looked right at me. You could see the wheels turning in his head and he goes, Sneeze equals cheese. And he sneezes again. So being the sicko that I am, I gave him another piece of cheese. And after that, he would walk by the refrigerator and sneeze looking for cheese all the time. Um, a behavior, which is followed by a food reward, is like to, more likely to be repeated. It turns out the same thing is true about our thoughts. A thought that's followed by a food reward is more likely to be repeated. Now, if you think about it, what usually happens is the pig will squeal. You can just start again tomorrow. It will be easy. And then you have the chocolate. What you've done is taught, taught yourself to sneeze for cheese. The sneezing is thinking about um, how it'll be easier to start, just as easy to start tomorrow. And the cheese is the chocolate reward. You've sneezed for cheese. You've conditioned your thought via operant conditioning. Well, it occurred to me a couple of years ago what if we could take control of that same phenomenon in our favor? So instead of letting the pig get reinforced for all these squeals and then getting a whole bunch of slop, what if every time before we ate, we could pause and then think the thoughts that we wanted to think and then reinforce them with food? So, so this, is, um, this is a little more difficult part of the process because it does not feel natural to pause before you eat. Like one of my clients said, Glenn, I just can't do this because... 
it doesn't feel natural to pause and breathe and think these things when I have a big steaming plate of food in front of me. Um, and if I, if I could go back a couple of years and give her a different response, I would have said, that's exactly what you're supposed to feel. It's not natural, but we need to do something unnatural because we live in an unnatural world. So we're inserting an unnatural pause um, to, to fight the unnatural things that we're living with. And so you start by just going every time before you eat, one, two, three. One, two, three. Some people don't go any further than that. Sometimes that's all you do. But it's the difference between being on autopilot when you're eating and being a little more mindful when you're eating. Um, if that's hard, some people will just take a picture of their food. Just take the time to take a picture of their food. Um, once you have enough of a pause muscle to do that, then you add what we call a 7-11 breath to the mix. You breathe in for a kind of seven and out for a kind of 11. I'm not doing it now because it takes more time. So you go one, two, three, and then you breathe in for a kind of seven and out for a kind of 11. This signals the brain that there's no emergency because if a hungry bear were chasing you, you wouldn't have time to do this. You'd be going... Um, what you're really doing is physically telling your brain, there's no emergency. We have everything we need right now. Once your pause muscle is that big, you could stop there. Or you could start to insert a mantra that addresses the most common squeal that gets you. So if you are most commonly bothered by you know, something that says, um, just one bite won't hurt, you could say, one bite's a tragedy. I always use the present moment to be healthy, right? Then you have a mantra. Now, if you do this every time before you eat and you do it in that slightly calmer state created by the pause, within a month or so, when you start to think about food, you're going to have just pop into your head naturally, one bite's a tragedy. I always use the present moment to be healthy. So you're conditioning the thoughts that you want to be there instead of the thoughts that the pig does. There are other things you can put into that pause. You can put motivational statements. You can put your, your favorite quotes. You can put your rules if you need to remember your rules. There are a lot of things you can put there. It depends upon what you really need. Um, but the idea is to condition this pause muscle and then program it by saying that before you eat. You can do various lengths. So you could have a long version and a short version. You don't have to do it absolutely every single time. The more you do it, the more conditioned it's going to be. And then you'll have this, um, you know, this automatic set of thoughts that takes place when you start to think about food instead of what the pig wants you to think when you start to think about food. So that, that's how you do that. That's step six. I, I, I love that so much. And I would, I would probably, you would know this probably a lot better than, than me, but outside of the psychological benefits that you're getting from this, there's physiological benefits as well as to eating in a calmer state as opposed to a frantic, stressful state, correct? Like in how our body is processing and digesting all that. Like if we're if we're elevated and stressed, that's why they say, you know, don't eat and watch TV. Don't, you know, don't, don't eat and, and argue. Like try to be as calm and peaceful. That's why people pray a lot of times. Obviously, you know, they're 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 asking for other things, but sometimes it's bringing you down just closer to home and kind of allowing your 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 nervous system to kind of get into more of a sympathetic state as opposed to a fight or flight, right? So there would be benefits just from a physiological perspective. There are studies that suggest that we absorb more nutrition when we're in a, in a calm and mindful state, that we feel full sooner, that we don't need as much. Um, there, there, are, there are enormous benefits. And 
you actually enjoy the food more because you feel it going down. You're, you're letting it nourish you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it yeah. makes a big difference. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. F- f- final two here. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up here in a minute. Uh, step seven, have a recovery plan. I mean, that's what these steps are, but what do you mean here in step seven in terms of having a recovery plan? If you make a serious mistake, especially if you haven't made one for a while, and everybody should cover their pig's ears while I talk about this, most people do make serious mistakes. Um, it's good to have a plan for how to overcome that quickly and to prepare, to prepare it ahead of time. It involves figuring out a 72-hour food plan for what you're actually going to eat um, to restabilize your dopamine levels and restabilize your blood sugar. So a lot of people, if they make a big mistake, they'll think, I got to make up for that. I need to overexercise. I need to undereat for three days. Otherwise, I'm going to be carrying this extra weight. It, it's a mistake to do that because it keeps you on a feast and famine roller coaster and you're setting up the next binge. You make up for crazy eating for one day of crazy eating. You make up with, for it by a week of normal eating. You don't make up for it with a day of crazy eating, um, you know, under restricted. So you, you get off the roller coaster, man. You just got to get off the roller coaster. What that, what that means usually is you eliminate all the high glycemic foods from your diet for a couple of days. So, you know, no sugar, white flour, alcohol for, for a few days. If you are, on the plant-based side, like me, you'd have a lot of beans and greens, maybe a couple of pieces of fruit. If you're in the animal-based side, you'd have, um, you know, lean, pro- lean protein and greens and vegetables and things that take a long time to digest. They hit your blood sugar slowly, and they put you in a more stable frame of mind. Um, you know, and then you have a plan for. You might want to have a journal for a couple of days that um, you write down how you observe things are getting better three times a day. Set an alarm to go off three times a day. How is your digestion? How is your mood? You know, you'll usually be progressively less negative as the days go by. Don't worry about your weight those next couple of days. Um, But, you know, focus on the non-scale victories. And every three or four hours, you're going to feel remarkably better. So um, having that in place is really important. And then having a refutation for the idea that you're powerless because your pig is going to try to convince you that you're pathetic and weak and incapable of resisting the next binge. That's just because it wants more. That's the only reason that it's, that it's going to do that. Um, but have a, have a refutation, you know, for example, you might say, look, I've, I've eaten 94% of my meals on plan over the last two years, and I might not be at my ideal weight, but I'm within 15% of it or whatever it happens to be. Collect, collect evidence of success, put it into a one paragraph refutation, and then read that every, every, at every meal for a couple of days just to prevent the pig from telling you that you're powerless and weak and you can't resist more. Yeah. Love that. Have grace for yourself. And eighth and final step, uh, build community support. Yeah. I, I used to, in my first book, I railed against the idea of overly over dependence on community. I really didn't believe in sponsors. I still don't believe in lifelong sponsors or anything like that, but I hired some researchers to look into it because everybody really wanted community support. And I, and I wound up kind of caving into the pressure over time. And, you know, so we had these, we had these groups that we ran and, and um, well, it does turn out that you do almost twice as better. Like the studies are mostly on weight loss and not so much about changing your structure of mind, which is more, more where I focus, but it turns out people do just about twice as better in the long run if they have, they have some group support, community support. Um, so if there are instructions in my book for how to develop it yourself, and then we have a free community and then we have a, you know, we have a paid coaching community also. Uh, well, incredible. Uh, well, as we wrap things up here, uh, we'll end the show here in a minute with our, our last and final question. Obviously, I want to direct everybody 
uh, to pick up the books with Lemming and know where they can find a free copy of it. Um, and then where can they connect with you? Maybe where can they find this free group? If they want to be plugged in with that. And, and where's the best place to learn more about some of your coaching and services? You'll get everything that you want at defeatyourcravings.com. Click the big blue button, sign up for the reader bonus list. You'll get a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF form. If you want the other formats, there's a customary charge, but it's free for Kindle, Nook, or PDF. You'll get a set of food plan starter templates where we're diet agnostic. So we thought through a set of food rules that might work for people, whether they were you know, whole foods plant-based or carnivore or ketogenic or point counting or calorie counting or macrobiotic, but whatever you happen to be doing, there's a set of templates that might work for you. Um, and then I know that this sounds, there's a lot to this and you might be thinking, why does Frank have this doctor around with a pig inside of him? It's kind of weird. Um, so I wanted you to hear that this is a very compassionate process. So I recorded a bunch of coaching sessions. It's all free. Defeaturecravings.com. Click the big blue button. Get signed up for that list. You'll find out about the coaching. Um, on the website, there's also my podcast. You can sign up for that. There's an app. You can sign up for that. It's all there. Yeah, incredible. Guys, so we'll have that plugged down there in the show notes. If you're on the audio side, if you're listening and watching on YouTube, it'll be down there in the description box. I'm also going to link episode 84, which was published a little over two years ago, July of 2021, uh, where we unpacked more of the first book. We got more into Dr. Glenn's story, you know, working, I think, in the pharmaceutical industry. No, the big food industry back then and kind of how you, yeah. Yeah, so so we unpack a little bit of the story about how you got here. So if you guys want to learn more about him as an individual and his story that led him to doing all this work, that's going to be there in episode 84. But uh, Dr. Glenn, incredibly honored to have you back on here, here today. This was incredibly valuable, and I'm glad we were able to kind of unpack all those steps here. As we bring today's conversation to a close, I'm sure I asked you this question last time, but it is how we end every single episode. The title of our show is called The Superman Life. And for me, when I talk about living a superman life, it is a, it, it's a belief system or it's a way that I try to show up in the world. And it's coming from the place that I do believe we're put on this earth for a purpose. So each one of us has a calling on our life. There's something that we're supposed to be doing, but it doesn't stop there. We must be very intentional about our development as an individual so it can bring that purpose to the world in service of others. So that's my kind of frame of how I try to live and operate. And that's why I call the show The Superman Life. But Dr. Glenn Livingston, as we end today's conversation, how would you define living a superhuman life? Well, I absolutely resonate with what you're saying. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I'm not a particularly religious person. I, I think that you are, but I, I've had religious friends and they define it as having a servant's heart. And that, that doesn't mean that I'm not out for myself too. But, um, you know, like when, when I got divorced, I decided money didn't matter anymore, that I, I was just going to do what was meaningful to me that was really helping people. And that, that's how this all honestly got to be so big because I just focus on that day in and day out. Um, and so I think having a servant's heart is primary um, as a way to have a good life. I think that most people don't realize that there's a fundamental choice that we make in life between the desire to get even and the desire to get well, and you can't have both of them. And it's easy to give lip service to say, you know, I've embraced forgiveness and I work on, on getting well. But when you look at people's actions, it's, it's a much harder thing to do in practice. So I'd ask people to take a really good hard look at where's your energy focus? Is it more focused on getting even or getting well? Um, I try to do that every day. Um, I think we need to commit with perfection, like aim at the bullseye with, with the totality of our soul and none of this progress, not perfection BS. But if we make a mistake, we need to forgive ourselves with dignity, commit, commit with perfection, forgive ourselves with dignity. So yeah, I think it all goes together.
Yeah, no, that's that's beautiful, man. And I know you said you're not a religious individual, but having spent now, you know, over two hours with you, over three hours, because we did an episode for your show as well. Um, I would say yours and I's worldview probably line up more than most people that actually would call themselves Christians and believers. Um, so, you know, take that however you want, but I, I I think we I think we really see things very, very similar. And I think that's why we've resonate so well with each other. And, uh, and, and you've, you know, you've, you've set an example of building a massive empire off of service first. And, you know, I hope to continue to follow in those steps in a different realm, right? You know, obviously you're helping people in the food side of things. I'm helping men in the, you know, compulsive behavior with, with pornography, but you've given me a lot here, man. Honored to call you a friend. Honored to seriously. Likewise, brother. Likewise. I'm looking forward to uh, connecting here, you know, in person at some point. But uh, guys, make sure to connect with, with Glenn out there. DefeatYourCravings.com. Uh, make sure to share this episode, guys. We ask you every single week. And a lot of you are. And that's why we've seen the growth over the last couple of months that we have. So we're so grateful for all you guys out there. Uh, make sure to subscribe. Make sure to rate, review. But for Dr. Glenn Livingston, your host, Frank Rich, and we're not going to forget about Tag because he was a big part of this conversation here as well. Uh, we fact, love you guys. <laughs> yeah. We love you guys. And we will uh, we'll see you next week, guys. God bless.